Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. AI will um, uh, make phenomenal companies and tycoons faster, and it will also displace jobs faster than computers and internet. It's already happening. That's Kai-Fu Lee speaking, the former head of Google China and the so-called Oracle of AI. I think there are at least two issues involved. One is how to do income redistribution. And that is a very complex issue. I'm not an expert, but one way or another, the ultra-rich who did extremely well based on AI or other reasons, I think somehow need to help the people who are underprivileged or even victimized by technology. Uh, the exact mechanism, I don't know, but if we don't do a redistribution, it's going to be a serious matter for uh, social stability. It's not actually a underprivileged minority. It will become an underprivileged majority. The benefits of the AI revolution will not be evenly distributed. And according to Kai-Fu, automation will replace 40% of jobs worldwide in the next 15 years. The second part is uh, how do we help people whose jobs have been displaced find a new beginning? We ask the question, what can AI and automation not do? That is the central question of this episode. As AI and automation displace more and more jobs, what will be left for us to do? And who will be qualified to do it? Today, we'll explore the automated economy and the changes it will bring. I'm Oz Veloshin. Welcome to Sleepwalkers. So, Kara, when I hear Kai-Fu talking about jobs being lost to AI, my mind goes immediately to driverless cars, um, self-driving cars replacing taxis, um, long-distance trucking, that kind of thing. Yeah, but there's also, you know, agriculture. Like combine harvesters? Like robots who are picking fruit. Um, Washington State actually announced that next season they're going to be rolling out these vacuum harvesters. 
that use AI to identify and pick only ripe apples. Wow, so not only picking the fruit, but also being smart about which fruit it picks. That's right, the ripe stuff. The ripe stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And there's actually this raspberry picking robot in the UK that was funded by some British supermarkets, and those robots can pick 25,000 berries a day versus a human's 15,000 in an eight-hour day. And also, remember this, eight-hour days for a human being is a long day. For a robot, a robot doesn't know what a long day is, nor does it know what a short day is, and it can work into the night. Right, and when we force ourselves into comparison with these uh, robots, it kind of creates very unrealistic expectations for what workers can do. Interesting is not just uh, jobs that require mechanical skills that Kai-Fu thinks will be lost to automation. Um, And AI actually doesn't distinguish between white-collar and blue-collar jobs. So any job that has a routine element, uh, whether it's underwriting loans or telemarketing or researching... You know, this is a lot of work. The first AI podcast may not be too far off. Um, It actually reminds me of the episode we did about AI and creativity that... Algorithms that can write poetry and music and screenplays are already here. This is not some robot apocalypse uh, in the distant future. Job displacement is with us. Julian, you got in touch with somebody who's seeing this play out in real time. Yeah, I did. His name's Wally Kankowski, and he lives in Florida. All around the city, whatever direction we're going to go, we know where every, every McDonald's pretty much is on the way to the job. Well, a lot of the people know us because we go in there all the time. A lot of them know me because not too many people get a medium coffee with 12 creams. (laughs) You get 12? Yeah. As well as taking a huge number of creams in his coffee, Wally owns a pool screens and repair business in Orlando, Florida. His job takes him all around town, but every morning starts the same way, at a McDonald's. And recently, Wally has seen a change. They just started to show up probably about a year or so ago that way. When we go to a counter, people are getting mad because they want you to go to use the key off. I'm walking up to the counter wanting to get my coffee and get on with our day. They're like, oh, you got to use the key off. So then they want me to hit the screen. The screen says, go to this thing, go to beverage. Okay, what kind of beverage? Okay, I go to coffee, but what do you want, iced coffee, this, that. And then instead of me saying 12 cream and she hears me, now I get to hit the machine like 12 times, 12 times to get it because that's how many times I got to hit it to get to 12. The thing is knocking someone out of a job. We've all been Wally, stuck at a self-checkout or yelling at an automated phone menu that refuses to understand what we're saying. But those interactions are not just frustrating for us. They're real-world examples of jobs being displaced by technology. And they don't only affect the people whose jobs are threatened. We're in a lot of different McDonald's, and I probably recognize every single person in there. Some people I've known probably 10, 15 years, and they know who I am. You know, they're friendly enough to make you feel a little special there that way, I guess. We might be walking through a store and then I'll see those people and I'll go over to them and say, yeah, you're from McDonald's or that. And then they'll be like, yeah, I know who you are. Then you you actually get to meet and greet someone and make a conversation for a minute or two that way. Why would human contact me talking to a person for a second and getting my food and paying them in another two seconds? There shouldn't have been nothing wrong with that process. 
So Julian, how did this come about? What made you want to include Wally's story in the podcast? Well, for one thing, I, I love Wally, but these are also familiar stories, right? I mean, and Wally's been able to see this one play out over time where you can see how just changing one part of one task, you know, the way he orders a coffee, has actually had this ripple effect that also follows him around as he goes about his day. Yeah, I was especially struck by Wally's story because it's easy to talk about automation and job displacement as these big abstract ideas. But here's somebody who's actually felt it, uh, even though it's not his job that's been lost. It's something that affects the whole community. You know, I don't mean to be super nostalgic, but a lot of great movies and great young adult novels have, you know, the teenage girl who's angsty and, you know, works at the fryer. And, you know, now it's just like, are you going to have like an angsty data scientist, you know, mulling over the express checkout? <laughs> Crouched over the screen. <laughs> yeah. Well, those those golden arches, they're a very enduring symbol for America. Um, and earlier this year, McDonald's acquired an AI company for $300 million. It was their biggest acquisition for 20 years. And it's all about predicting what people might order before they even arrive at the store. So even the days of kiosks may be numbered. Maybe we'll be nostalgic about them in 20 years. But nonetheless, this AI acquisition could ultimately lead to a better customer experience. And it's important to remember that the AI revolution doesn't need to be just about displacing jobs. Um, it can also be about augmenting us and our experience. One person working on human-machine partnership is Gil Pratt, CEO of the Toyota Research Institute. Many of our colleagues at uh, other companies are really focused on building only the self-driving car, where you replace the driver with an AI system. But we also have this other track of building something that we call the Guardian, which is meant to safeguard a human being when they drive to avoid accidents and to avoid crashes. I think the Guardian approach has been at odds because of money. The economic desire to replace the driver in a taxi is very large. And a lot of companies are sort of going after this attractive idea of automating out the human being from driving taxis. But, you know, Toyota is first and foremost a car company, which means that we have this business of making cars. We also want to make cars a lot more safe. And we also want to make them a lot more fun. Gill makes an important point. Today, our innovation is driven by the market. Companies like Uber and Tesla keep their valuations high by promising their investors that they will be able to do better business in future by replacing human drivers. Toyota is actually an investor in Uber, but its primary business is car manufacturing. So their bet is on enhancing the abilities of human drivers rather than replacing them, making driving more fun. And Gill's humanistic approach to technology is also being applied to other problems at the Toyota Research Institute. We want to allow people to age in place with dignity. And in particular, we want to help them by amplifying their abilities to make up for what was lost rather than replacing their abilities and make them feel as if they're elderly. It's a subtle difference, uh, and it's very easy to get it wrong. It's very easy to uh, build a technology that is ostensibly going to help some, someone, but it's, what it's really doing is offloading work from them and making them feel like they can't do it, and therefore they're old and they should just sit in a chair. It's much harder to figure out a way, particularly in the robotics field, to continue to engage the person so that they feel like they can do it themselves. And that's a little bit of a difference in how we try to do things. 
There's one that we've recently started to show, which is a machine called the Buddy. And this idea is one where older people have a lot of difficulty reaching down low uh, to pick up things from the ground and difficulty moving heavy things. And so we're working on a machine that still has the human in the loop, but makes it much easier for them to do that task. But Gil understands that no matter how much robotics may be able to help solve the practical challenges of life as an older person, it can never replace a human care provider. Just to be very, very clear, we don't want to replace people as companions. We think that what human beings want most of all in a companion is another human being. So, companion. Uh, this brings us back to what Kai-Fu was saying right at the top of the episode. What can AI and automation not do? So yeah, Gill acknowledges that no matter how much progress is made in the field of robotics to help elderly people, nothing's going to make up for human contact. I actually was able to talk to Sherry Turkle, who's a professor at MIT, who talks a lot about human beings and their relationship with technology. And she talks about this fluffy seal robot called Paro, which is used in nursing homes to soothe Alzheimer's patients. And it can simulate this like affectionate little animal. And it can be really effective at drawing people out of their shells when they're otherwise hard to reach or feeling disoriented. On the other hand, and this is Sherry's argument, it becomes really easy for family members to be like, well, you know, my grandpa has this, you know, seal at home. I don't need to go visit him all the time. And I know that sounds extreme, but it's more of the idea of the fact that we're using these robots to make us feel better about calming people who we could otherwise have strong relationships with. Yeah, and I think it also normalizes the idea of interacting with robots or technology instead of real people. And that's painful. That's what Wally was really talking about. Yes, it's frustrating to have to use the kiosk when you want 12 creams with your coffee. But more importantly, it erodes community bonds. Yeah, it's no wonder that a company like McDonald's is spending a ton of money on this. It makes them more efficient and profitable if they don't have to pay people. Yeah, and it's hard to turn back the clocks. You know, Donald Trump talks about bringing back the coal jobs, but jobs that have been lost are very hard to recreate. It does make me think about Kaifu's comment at the top of the episode about the underprivileged majority. Yuval Noah Harari, who's coming to join us later in the series, talks about a useless class. When we come back, we look at what this means for the people at the sharp end, the people losing their jobs to automation, and at some of the proposed solutions. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. According to an Oxfam International report published earlier this year, the 26 richest billionaires in the world have as much wealth as the poorest 3.8 billion people. And many of those billionaires made their fortunes from technology. Jeff Bezos is the world's richest person, thanks to Amazon. Meanwhile, Amazon is investing hundreds of millions of dollars in automating their supply chain. In other words, attempting to cut out the labor force who made the business possible. It's a bit like Uber's investment in self-driving technology. So what jobs might be safe from the relentless march towards automation? I asked Kai-Fu Lee. My general feeling is that these will be the human interaction jobs the compassionate, empathetic jobs, the jobs that we expect a human and refuse to work with a robot. That would doubly ensure these jobs are safe because one, AI can't do them now, and two, even if AI got better, customers don't accept it. Then those jobs will become the right areas to retrain people to move into. So jobs like nurses, uh, nannies, elderly care, high-end jobs like psychiatrists and doctors, because the future will be different. AI can do the analytical part, but the doctor will still need to provide the warmth and the uh, human contact that the patient expects during the worst period of vulnerability. While we may move more towards ordering from kiosks and help menus, or not even needing to order at all, Kaifu agrees with Gil. We'll still need the human touch in a range of industries, many of them centered around care and human services. And it's striking to hear these two pioneers of new technology, Kaifu in AI and Gill in robotics, agree, both arguing that automation might increase the value of what is uniquely human. 
Gill turns to history to back up his argument. He looks at how our understanding of our own value as humans shifted during the Industrial Revolution, away from the ability of our bodies towards the ability of our minds. You know, if you go back in history and you say, how did people earn a living back in the days of mechanical work? There wasn't, you know, steam engines, no use of gasoline or oil or anything like that. And the answer was that the economic capital that a human being would have just by being born was primarily mechanical. So our muscles made us worthwhile at a minimum level. And machines effectively took over most of the mechanical work that we do. And so we now are valued mostly on what we can do with our minds. Assuming that this next stage of AI occurs, where most of the mental labor that is done is displaced, what I think we need to think about now is what will we do then? And we need to think about it even if this next stage of AI doesn't come for a while, because we went from mechanical to mental. Is there something next? Is there something next? That is the trillion-dollar question. According to Gill, the Industrial Revolution led us to place more value on the mind than the muscle. Now that AI can increasingly perform mental labor, will we find a new source of value? And could it be, like Kai-Fu hinted at as well, some emotional connection? When I read a story to my son, it matters a whole lot to him. When I read a story to my mother, it's very much the same thing. So could we actually decide to increase the value that we pay for social work? There's many, many different jobs that really should be paid much, much higher than they are now. Jobs of teaching and helping, so forth. And so I'm an optimist that we can find an answer, but I think we need to realize the difficulty in order to move towards that answer. The difficulty is huge because, as of now, except in the world of luxury, the market does not reward the kind of human contact that Kai-Fu and Gil allude to. And while we, like Wally, may wish for our food orders not to be automated, how much more would we pay for human contact? How much more could we afford to pay? Part of the problem is that automation is exacerbating the gap between rich and poor. Technology companies can increasingly create wealth without needing to pay the wages of additional employees. That's the secret behind that word you hear so often, scale. Which is why Kai-Fu Lee proposes a radical solution. If we start to redistribute the income, that is taking away the power of the ultra-rich. If we start to give the people who are stripped of their current jobs a new job that has not only income but also meaning, I think um, people would be more fulfilled. Their children, at least, would have a chance. Just to pause, Kai-Fu Lee is a hugely successful international investor, arguing that we need to overturn one of the most fundamental assumptions of American society, that the market should be allowed to set the price. And Kai-Fu is not alone. Others in Silicon Valley are calling for a so-called universal basic income, a stipend paid to all citizens to acknowledge an increasingly broken relationship between labor and value. Today, we're nowhere close on either of those ideas. But a growing chorus of inside voices is acknowledging that automation will bring further disruption to society. And others have even greater fears. You may remember Ian Bremer from our episode on China and surveillance. He's a political scientist and the author of Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism. I am less worried about just jobs going away than I am about technology facilitating the creation of completely different types of human beings. What happens 
when you have the ability to actually provide completely different sets of cognitive skills to human beings that have access to certain types of new technology. Ian's fear is that as technology improves, the rich won't simply reproduce their privilege through elite universities and professional networks. They may start to upgrade their very hardware, making social mobility even harder for those who can't afford the same modifications. Better memory retention, better pattern recognition, more ability to link to real-time information in the global net, uh, I mean, ability not to sleep for longer periods of time, all of this sort of thing, right? The danger is that I don't care how much money, how much wealth in society, when you start creating that kind of differentiation, everything we know about human history is that that doesn't end well. Those other people that aren't as capable get treated like animals or worse. And I am very deeply worried that the speed of technological transformation, coupled with the speed of this new industrial revolution, makes it much more likely that large numbers of people in our own societies, not in other countries, but like right here, are suddenly not going to have that capacity, and we're going to treat them as different types of humans. Maybe not even as humans at all. This is the truly dystopian future that we all fear, Kara, this concept of a two-track humanity facilitated by technology where some people have value and others don't. Yeah, you know, this is the dark version of transhumanism, which we're going to talk about later in the series. But, you know, it's not some sci-fi fantasy. Our favorite pre-supervillain, Elon Musk, founded Neuralink, which aims to create brain-computer interfaces. Like, why do we need that? Well, I guess because in today's economy, being smart is seen as the most important differentiating factor. Yeah, but we're not talking about being an intellectual. Like, we're talking about being cognitively enhanced by a computer or by technology. And Elon Musk uh, isn't the only person who's noticed how important it is to be cognitively enhanced, shall we say. Last year, the World Bank announced a program called the Famine Action Mechanism to get relief to famine-hit areas faster. And they explicitly said one of the reasons they're doing this is that because people who are malnourished in the womb may have cognitive issues later in life and thus be unable to compete in the new economy. You know, I found it really interesting that this program is actually powered by AI. It draws on data like social media, food prices, rainfall, and then automatically assigns funds so that money gets where it's needed before it's too late. It's a textbook case of what AI can do and we can't, which is to notice these patterns and correlations between different types of data sets, which are so big as to be impossible for us to compute. And as so often in Sleepwalkers, uh, it's an example of technology being a double-edged sword. Uh, On the one hand, it may be widening the gap between rich and poor, but on the other hand, it can potentially feed the world. When we come back, we explore other ways AI and robotics can revolutionize food production. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, 
a military-trained seduction spy, reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've looked at how AI and robotics could exacerbate the gulf between rich and poor, and at how this new industrial revolution could put a new value on human connection. But could we use automation to actually decrease global inequality? One key factor is access to quality nutrition, and roboticist George Cantor gave a talk last year at South by Southwest called AI Will Help Feed a Growing Planet. I wanted to learn more, so I called him for a conversation from his office at the Robotics Institute of Carnegie Mellon. A lot of people, when they think about robots and technology being used to assist agriculture, think about robots driving around and picking grapes or plowing fields and things like that. But despite being a robotics expert, George is currently focusing on crop genetics. The way plant breeding works, you have a bunch of parents. A plant breeder very carefully uses all his or her experience to figure out which parents will make the best potential children. They make those crosses. They then do these field trials where they grow the child varieties and they measure them and see how they do. And then the winners go back in the pool and the losers they, they weed out. One of the crops we work with is sorghum. It's grown all over the world. There are like 40,000 different varieties of it. In particular, the grain sorghum variety is a staple crop in places like sub-Saharan Africa and India. 
parts of the world where population is growing more rapidly than the rest of the planet's populations, and the predictions for the impact of global warming are, are pretty high. George uses technology to make the work of human plant breeders dramatically more efficient. But this work is completely invisible to consumers. So we have built a robot that goes out to a breeding experiment where a breeder has grown a thousand different varieties of sorghum. Our robot goes through and takes all these detailed measurements about how the plants are growing throughout the year. And then the breeder can use those measurements to make better decisions. The end user of this process I'm describing won't see any technology at all. They will get a seed that looks just like the seed they get now, except it will be a little bit better because the breeder improved it using our robots. These invisible changes to the food production system can have huge consequences. Better seeds mean better yields and could ultimately lead to a better nourished world. But George isn't only thinking about how to make heartier, better plants. He's also thinking about another problem. How will we efficiently feed a global population who increasingly live in cities and not on the farm? Imagine every building in a city had a little greenhouse hanging off the side of it or a, a little growing room in the basement. And now you've got these indoor growing systems that tend to like generate more heat than they need. So one of their big problems is venting off the heat. Well, buildings have to pay a lot of money to heat the buildings. So if you had this sort of symbiotic relationship between the people in the building and the plants in the building, they could exchange heat and they can exchange atmosphere and all kinds of things. If you take that idea and you scale it up to like a city scale where now you have dozens or hundreds of buildings that all have these different energy needs and different agricultural needs and they're all sort of sharing, you have some sort of overarching AI that controls what energy gets moved where, um, you can imagine that there are big efficiencies that can be gained. George is outlining a vision where robotics and AI help us tackle one of the world's most enduring sources of inequality food access. And doing so could also make agriculture more energy efficient, and thus begin to address another huge problem that will disproportionately affect the world's poorest people, climate change. So yes, automation will take jobs away, but it can also potentially raise quality of life and the quality of the global environment. And as far as George is concerned, the type of labor being replaced is not exactly work that maximizes human potential. We call them dull, dirty, dangerous. So jobs that people don't want or are dangerous to do or people are getting injured in. When I go visit the grape industry in California and I see the laborers, they're out there, they're stooped over under trees, they're doing this extremely backbreaking labor. There are high incidences of repetitive stress injuries and so it's just not a very pleasant environment to be working in. When automation comes into an industry, it takes away some jobs that were there, but it creates other opportunities. So for example, most orchards, you know, they'll have sort of a year-round staff of maybe a dozen people. And then at certain busy times of the year, they'll bring in maybe a hundred laborers to come in and, and help with the harvest. I think everybody would be better off if that orchard had a year-round staff of 20 people that were productive all year long and were able to use technology to even out these bumps in the labor demand. And so those people, those 20 people, are going to need to be higher skilled, but they're also going to get paid more, and they're also going to have more comfortable jobs, and overall they will produce more per person than they would in the other system. Of course, the lingering question is, what happens to the 80 people who no longer have a job? and who gets to enjoy the fruits of this more efficient system. Technology has improved lives all around the world and lifted millions out of poverty, but it has also dramatically enriched an extremely small number of people, 
We mentioned Elon Musk's Neuralink earlier, and he's not alone in the Silicon Valley elite investing in transhumanist technologies. That should give us pause, remembering what Ian Bremmer said about cognitive differentiation. So there's much to fear, and there are no obvious solutions in sight. And yet, people like Kai-Fu Lee and Gil Pratt, people who are leading the field, remain optimistic. I wanted to know why. There is a strong belief that thought leaders should do the best they can do to project a possible future and strive towards it and encourage other people to help make that a reality. Because whether we point at the future that is a utopia or dystopia, if everybody believes in it, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'd like to be part of that force which points towards more of a utopian direction, even though I fully understand and recognize the possibility and risks of the negative ending. We all want to believe in that utopian direction, harnessing automation to help feed the world without stripping ourselves of community interaction. Because man cannot live on bread alone, and we need to make sure to balance gains in efficiency with preserving the fabric of our society. In the next episode, we travel from the farmyard to the battlefield. We meet some of the people pioneering the use of AI and robotics to wage different kinds of wars. And we speak with Arthi Prabhakar, the former head of DARPA, the agency that created the internet, about how technology is revolutionizing the military. I'm Oz Veloshin. See you next time. Sleepwalkers is a production of iHeartRadio and Unusual Productions. For the latest AI news, live interviews, and behind-the-scenes footage, find us on Instagram at sleepwalkerspodcast or at sleepwalkerspodcast.com. Sleepwalkers is hosted by me, Oz Voloshin. And co-hosted by me, Carol Price. We're produced by Julian Weller, with help from Jacopo Penzo and Taylor Chicoin. Mixing by Tristan McNeil and Julian Weller. Our story editor is Matthew Riddle. Recording assistance this episode from Walter Kowski. Sleepwalkers is executive produced by me, Osvaloshin, and Mangesh Hatikada. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets 
and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.